How are we doing today? Great. Excellent. Uh, we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, but before we get there, we have this wonderful slide for you. And does everybody remember what this represents? It represents cold fingers juggling. And what are they juggling? Green reindeer. What does that have to do with 1 Thessalonians, let alone church? It is a mental visual reminder for us of the gospel message of all things. The cold fingers represent the message of creation and the fall, that God has made us unique individuals in his image for a relationship with him, but because of sin, the fall has entered in, and we have broken and lost that relationship with him. The juggling represents what word? Judgment or God's justice. That God says, because of that sin, I now have a response to it. And that response is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are all deserving of punishment, which God says is hell. But he is juggling green reindeer. And the green represents what part of the gospel message? Grace. But God intervened with the fall and with judgment, and God said, I'm going to send a substitute in your place to take your place upon the cross, to pay your penalty, to pay your debt, to redeem you from all the judgment called Jesus Christ. And he did that purely out of grace, out of love, out of compassion, out of mercy, out of kindness, because we did not earn it or deserve it. That's why it's called grace. And the reindeer, or the R, represents the word response. Because having heard that message, we now have to deal with the message. We either believe the message or reject the message. And so that little mental picture hopefully stays in our mind, and obviously the words associated with it, so that when we have the opportunity, whenever we can hang out with people again, and friends and family, we have in our mind already I know how to take someone through the gospel message. I talk about cold fingers juggling green reindeers. And maybe the very first time you do that, you say, well, you know, cold fingers juggle green reindeers. And the person will look at you strange. And you'll say, oh, no, no, there's a purpose behind that. And then you make it up. And then you go, okay, we're talking about creation and the fall and judgment as well as grace and a response. It's all here because Paul himself is a missionary and an ambassador for the gospel. He has said that the gospel has changed his life, and it changed the life of this small little city, Thessalonica, in, in Asia Minor, to a point where there is now a church growing in the middle of this town filled with idolatries and temples and every religion imaginable at the time. There's now a thriving Christian community longing for Paul, because Paul had to leave because he was being threatened by his life. Murder. And... Paul is trying to encourage them time and time again, this gospel that you hold near, near and dear to is effective. It's real. It changes our lives. It changes our relationship with God and with one another. And so he's been going through the entire book so far, all the way even through chapter 4, telling us how the gospel changes him and how it changes us, how it completes us, how it brings us that lasting just 
the weight off of our shoulders. We no longer bear the guilt and the shame. We now have Christ. That's his whole point. That's his whole goal is to have that Christian fall in love daily with the message of what Christ has done on their behalf. And so, continuing on, we're in chapter 4, we're actually in verse 13, and Paul immediately, in the beginning of that verse, and let me just read the whole verse, and then we're going back to the first part of it. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you may not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul starts out again, for the 14th time in this epistle, calling the Christians there at the church brothers and sisters. There is a relationship that we have with one another that Scripture and God considers family. All throughout Scripture, it talks about the body of Christ. It talks about the assembly. In fact, we use the word church It's just an Old Testament word that means assembly of God's people. It's always been the fabric of God's people that we're close. Now, we may not be blood relatives, but we are better than blood relatives. We are relatives that are sealed and connected by the blood of Christ, this blood that is precious, that paid an atonement for our sins, a valued type of blood. We have that relationship Regardless of when the Christian was born, what nation the Christian belongs to, what time they were born in, we're all part of this glorious thing that Jesus calls the body or family. And it is it's an eternal family. Scripture often talks about what happens when we die and the relationships that we have in this life. Family relationships, physical family relationships. And while, yes, it's true that I'll have a mom and dad and siblings and and children in heaven, uh, that relationship is not as strong or as bound as a relationship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul is beautifully stressing that throughout the entire book. Without doing any teaching on it, he just simply says, brothers and sisters, what an endearing term of relationship brothers and sisters. And that's how Christ views us. That's how Paul views the church. And that's how we're to view one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Once in a while, you'll notice this if uh, you get an email from me. And and right now, obviously, with email, you have a signature and it just automatically is put into your email. But for the longest of time, I would sign my emails, your brother in Christ. And maybe you've gotten one that I've just kind of written real quick to you. Because I want that relationship to be reinforced. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that word for brothers there is the root word for phileo, or brotherly love, where we get the word Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. And so this connectiveness of brother and sister is rooted in love. Love roots the relationship, not who you married and who your children are. That's not the root of the relationship. The root of the relationship is love, brothers and sisters. 
And in Revelation, uh, John has just this wonderful imagery that he receives after the letters to the churches in chapter 7. And I'm going to read this. You don't have to turn there. But in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, listen to how John describes the people in heaven. Okay, I don't know if you've ever thought about what, what the people in heaven will be like, but this is how John describes the vision he had. He says, after this, after he looked at some of the 12 tribes of Israel, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. How big was that multitude, John? <laughs> that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they said, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, i got to stop there because otherwise I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's absolutely fascinating and an amazing declaration of who God is and who Christ is. And the people are all shouting from every tribe, every nation, every language, meaning that it really does indeed look like a representation of every culture and ethnicity you can imagine in one spot. Not making a political statement, but declaring to the world and to the universe that the one who sits upon the throne is absolutely amazing and fantastic and good and beautiful. They're all in all. They're Alpha and Omega. They're prophet, they're priest, they're king. The king of kings and lord of lords. They're savior. Everyone is declaring that. In their own language, maybe, I don't know, but, Paul, but John hears clearly they're declaring the greatness of God. Everyone. Our church, if you look around Calvary, and I think if you looked at most churches, the physical location church, you would find that this picture is not true of us yet. We tend to divide ourselves, whether naturally or culturally or socially, into groups where we kind of fit in, where we feel comfortable, where we have the same kind of faces, the same kind of language, uh, the same kind of look, sometimes even the same type of economic uh, experiences and social experiences. So this is a poor representation of what heaven is really going to be like. Heaven is going to be absolutely diverse in biblical, righteous, holy ways. Not for diversity's sake, because when it comes to God, humans are humans. There's no diversity there. There's uniqueness as individuals, but we have the same value, same worth, same image in every individual who has ever been born, ever lived, has that image of God in them. There's a video that we're going to show right after this little introduction that emphasizes not just our uniquenesses as individuals, but really clarifies and moves us to understanding what it means to be a brother and sister in Christ. It's so easy to place people in boxes, drawing lines, 
creating sides. There's us, and there's them. Those we feel comfortable around, and those we don't. There are those of us with many chapters, and those just starting their own stories. There's the well-to-do, and those doing what they can. There are those we share something with, and those we don't seem to share anything with. Welcome, and thank you for coming today, guys. Today, I'm gonna be conducting an experiment uh, where I'll ask you a series of questions. Now, these questions will be very personal questions, and for us to get a true result, I need you to be completely honest with how you respond. The first question I have is, who in here was the class clown? Who is never on time? us, we who have tattoos. We who feel lonely. We who have been bullied. others. We who are madly in love. We who have overcome great adversity. won the championship this year.
united as one under His grace. Is the experience of being a brother and sister in Christ. Tons of diversity. Not every story is the same. Not everyone is the same sitting next to you or across the row or even in a different location. But what unites us is that bond that we have before God that we are part of His body. And that can be celebrated. It can be praised to God for that incredible transformation that's happened to us. And every time Paul says, my brothers and sisters, I think in the back of his mind and in our mind should be this general understanding of God has made something wonderful and beautiful out of so many different stories and journeys and paths. And we've all met in one place. And we've bowed the same knee. And we've raised the same hands. And we've declared the same songs. And our hearts have relied upon the same God. And our lives have been changed by the same Christ. And our debt has fully been forgiven by the same hand of justice. And the promise is the same promise to you and I that He will return again in glory and in power, and He will make things right, and we will enjoy eternity in His presence, just like Revelation showed, Revelation 7, a moment of declaring the Lamb's greatness. So every time you see Paul say, brothers and sisters, have that emotion, have that thought, have that truth stick in your mind. It's not just a formal greeting. It's not just a nicety. It's not just something Paul doesn't know what else to say, so he says, oh, brothers and sisters. No, he means all of what you just saw and all of what Scripture says in those simple words, brother and sister. He then gets on to the rest of this chapter and puts into perspective our future. Our future. Because he says in the rest of that verse, in the rest, the rest of these verses here in this chapter, what's going to happen when Jesus returns? I think that's a relevant question because he could return today, right? And he could return a hundred years from now. We're not told the whens, but there's a lot of questions that come up in our minds. Well, what's going to happen? What's it going to feel like? What's it going to be like? And so Paul knows that this is going to be in their minds, and so he begins to address that question, and he even answers it in the second book of Thessalonians, Thessalonians, uh, the second book. But he starts here, and he says, brothers and sisters, have all of that emotion with it. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It really comes down to hope. I have, I have been in the presence in hospital rooms and in hospice rooms in both scenarios where the person who is dying and the family who is with them are strong believers. 
they are on fire for God. And it is sad and incredibly painful when that death comes. And I remember one lady in particular seeing and hearing that final breath. And her family standing around her with pain from losing their mother and grandmother. But they weren't hopeless. They weren't lost. There was assurance and joy and this weird sense of strange happiness. Not happy that they've passed, but happy that they're okay. And better than okay, that they are. They're in God's presence, and it's good to be there. And I've been in a room where the person passing away did not know God. Didn't know Him at all. Had no relationship with God. And the family surrounding it, for whatever reason, in one case I was passing an ER room and they were crying and the nurse knew that I was a pastor and said, can you go in there and pray with them? They're going to lose their, their dad. And I go in and no one knows me. I mean, no one knows they're believers, but they're not, not believers. They know I'm a pastor and they're, they look to me completely puzzled, but I, you know, can I pray? Can I do something? And yeah, of course, pray. And he passes right there on the table. And the difference in how the people cried and wailed. I'll never forget the sound of those cries. It was desperate. It was lonely. It was void. You could tell something was deeply missing in that experience of their loved one passing. They had no hope. They had no idea what the future brought. They had no idea what was going to happen. And they were wailing not just out of sorrow, but out of this pain of there's nothing for us. So I have experienced more than once both types of grieving, both types of sorrow. I've done both types of funerals. I would so much rather be in a room filled with Christians for a funeral and for someone passing. Because while there's pain, there's also hope. And Paul says, I want you to know that as a believer, there is hope. Not pie in the sky wishing, but real solid knowledge of what happens next. Of what happens next. And Paul says, I want you to know what happens next. I want you to know with surety what to believe and that God, uh, that God is there not like the rest of mankind, how they grieve with no hope. You have heard me more than once, and I hope you can repeat this in your sleep. Hell, the danger and the pain of hell, 
is not the lake of fire and the physical torment that someone will bear, but it is the fact that there is no hope. There's no change. We all live in a world where we hope things will get better. We all live in a world where we hope it'll turn out. We, we live with this expectation that it can always get better the next day or the next year or the next election cycle, whatever it might be. We all think it can get better. Thank you. But I don't think that was the purpose, but awesome. But hell, just like a life that dies without Christ, has no hope. That's the saddest part, the most painful part, the most grieving part of a future without Christ is that it's never going to get better. You're never going to get relief. There's never a chance you're getting out of the situation. And that knowledge that it will never, ever, ever improve has got to be the most tormenting part of God's justice when you leave this world without Christ. But Paul says, I want you to live and grieve with hope. And then he goes on to tell us in the very first thing in verse 14 about this second coming of Christ so that we would have hope. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the quintessential statement of the gospel, right? That he died and rose. That that message of Easter is here and alive in the church. He died and rose. That message will never get old. It'll never get boring. We should never be tired of hearing it or telling it. Our Savior died and rose. He paid the judgment and justice, and he gave us life. He became victorious over sin, death, and the devil. That statement of historical victory should always be our song, our theme, our hope, our message. And Paul says, we know, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I don't think it is a mistake or, or just happen chance that scripture in Paul right now talks about death for the believer as falling asleep. I think he really understands death, physical death, while it's real, while it happens, while it's heartbreaking, while it's filled with grief, is basically just a moment in time where we sleep. Not nighttime sleep, I mean it is real death, but the way that Scripture describes the death of a believer as falling asleep hits to the truth of it, that that death is not, that physical death is not forever, that there's a time limit on it. And Paul says there's a time limit here because when Christ returns, whenever that day is, and we're not privy to that information, we're not given that information, and it's really bad to read newspapers and try to guess it. I'm telling you, everyone who has read a newspaper headline and said, aha, this is the date, has been wrong every single time. Do not read the newspaper, do not listen to the news, and think, oh, now Jesus is coming back, because there's always something else 
He's not going to let you know. The Father is keeping that day and time to himself, and no headline, no event in Israel is going to reveal to you or to the person on TV or the Internet when he's coming back, the day and the time. We can see the generalized, well, he's coming back, and he's been doing that for 2,000-plus years now. He's coming back. But Paul says something very unique is going to happen to the people who have died beforehand. Before he comes back, he says, these people who have fallen asleep, Jesus will bring them with him. What is that going to look like? I don't know. I've never seen it. I've read books and I've seen movies and they kind of just sensationalize it. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I have no idea what's going to happen to a grave where your body has been resting for, some of them have been resting for thousands of years. However that's going to happen, I know God's going to make it wonderful and fantastic and painless and just mind-boggling. But somehow, as Jesus returns to earth in physical form, his real body returning to earth with all the scars attached, those aren't gone. Those who have died beforehand will return with him. And to pinpoint and to divide over any of those details is simply wrong because we're not given those details. You might have opinions. You might have read books and seen movies and give you an idea of what you think it's going to be. But Paul is as clear as he possibly can be. Jesus is going to bring back with him those who have fallen asleep before him. So what happens to those who are alive when Jesus returns? Because not everyone's going to be dead. If he returns today, I'm hoping we'll all still be alive to see it. Okay, so what happens to us? If all the dead come back with him, what happens to us? Well, verse 15 answers that question. According to the Lord's word, that is Jesus' own teaching, we tell you that we who are still alive, which would be us at this moment, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul says, okay, there's going to be some people who are still alive. Doesn't count Paul now. Paul's been dead for a long time. But it might count us, or it might count a generation or 100 years from now. We don't know. Or, or 2,000 years from now. We're not going to precede those who come with Jesus in death. So those who have died are coming first. However that looks, however that's arranged, whatever that sequence is, Paul wants you to know you're not going to be part of that group coming down to begin with. First group coming down, however that looks, is going to be those who have already fallen asleep who are now alive again in Christ. And those who remain, we're next, whatever next might be. Verse 16 continues the thought, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. And Revelation talks about some of these scenes, although it breaks it up in several different chapters, and it's not sequential. The book of Revelation is not um, 
time-sequenced, meaning chapter 1 doesn't happen, then chapter 2, then chapter 3, then chapter 4, chapter 5. It's more cyclical. All of those chapters, there's about four different sections that kind of repeat themselves in different language. So the story's being told about four different ways in the book of Revelation. It's not a time-sequence type of book. But one of those sequences in one of those descriptions, it talks about uh, Jesus Christ returning with the shout of triumph, with the angels surrounding him, uh, on the four horsemen going about judging the living and the dead, their right acts and their unrighteous acts. Uh, there's lots of different descriptions of what he's going to be doing in his return. I have no idea how long it's going to take because some of the descriptions in the book of Revelation, I mean, it seems like it's going to take a long time to get through everybody, all their right and wrongs. I don't know how that's going to happen. Because that could take a long time or it could be in an instant. Remember, time doesn't have any control over God and his actions and his thoughts and his plans. He uses time here and now in order to engage in us and for us to have experiences. But uh, enough of that kind of thought. But he says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. So I think it's going to be noticeable. Whenever this happens, it's going to be noticeable. And there's going to be power and authority associated with his return. He says, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So it's almost like he's going back to verse 14 and says, hey, you know, those that have fallen asleep, they're going to come first. Verse 15, those that are already alive, we're not going to come with him right away. And then he goes back to verse 16 and says, okay, just so you understand, all of those who've died in Christ, they're going to be raised from the dead. So we have no misunderstanding when he says those who have fallen asleep will be awake. No, no, no. Anyone who's dead in Christ, they're going to be resurrected. If you thought one resurrection was amazing of Christ on that day of Easter, imagine the countless millions. And in fact, remember John describes it in Revelation 7 as a multitude no one could count all being raised at the same time, at the same moment, it's going to be noticeable. It's going to be noticeable. And I think it's going to even be noticeable so-and-so's raised, so-and-so isn't. So-and-so is no longer dead. So-and-so, their grave hasn't moved one bit. Their bones haven't put on flesh, however that's going to look. They're still dead. So when Christ returns in this great command of authority, and all the world, I think, will know it and recognize it, at the same time, how that's going to happen, I don't understand, because half the world is in darkness and sleeping, and half the world is in sunlight. How is this going to happen? How is everyone going to see it at the same time? I don't have an answer for that, but I, I guess I do have an answer for it. God. He's just simply going to do it. And I'm going to have to believe that the laws of physics that we have today don't apply to God. He doesn't need the laws of physics to operate. He's the guy who walked on water, remember? He's the guy that told a storm, stop. He's the one that turned a couple fish and loaves of bread to feed thousands of people. I think he's got it figured out how he's going to show everyone at the same time that he's returned. And the dead in Christ will rise first. I think we're going to notice that. 
I don't know how that's going to look. I don't know how we're going to experience that. But if we're alive at the time, I think it's going to be noticeable because all the heavens are going to be shaking and shouting and declaring greatness about this Lamb of God who was slain, who is now victorious and coming back to judge the living and the dead. And the dead will be raised from their graves. So what will happen to all the believers at this time? A little bit uh, further in verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. I think the picture may look a little bit like this from these verses without trying to add any Hollywood effects to it. I think the moment that Christ returns and the Father says, go, the Son comes. How he enters into our experience and our reality, everyone's going to know it. The angels and heavens are going to be radically, radically declaring it. And at that moment where he is in the sky, Somehow, at the same time, all the dead in Christ, all of those past believers, and maybe ourselves included, are resurrected with full, real bodies, and we are immediately transferred somehow to Him as He's in the clouds descending. And then those that are still alive in Christ are also caught up to him in that same moment. And Paul says, I'm not going to tell you what happens after that, but I will tell you the end of the story, bottom line, is that we'll be with the Lord forever. Oh, Paul, I need more details. How's it going to feel? How's it going to look? Paul's not giving us any of that information because Scripture doesn't give us any of that information just simply says, hey, this, this is all going to happen. It's going to maybe feel like it's all happening at the same time. How much delay is there between the dead being raised and us, who are still alive, being transferred, translated, transformed into coming with him? And what are we going to exactly do as we're descending? If you've ever wanted to go parachuting, but you've been afraid, this is, I think, going to be kind of like that. I mean, talks about us coming down in the air. There's no parachute. There's Christ. And there's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's no worry. It just happens. I think we're going to be satisfied. I think we're going to be... I think we're going to have a feeling of this is really great. I don't know how else to describe it because I've never experienced descending with Christ to the earth in His final victory lap over all of sin, over all of creation, over all of the evil and wicked in this world. But somehow, after the dead in Christ are raised, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There's going to be this great connective unity of believers, of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think we're going to be amazed. 
I think John was amazed when he looked into heaven and saw that multitude in chapter 7. I think his mind was just blown because in his world, in his culture, the only people that were saved were Jews. Everybody else was a Gentile, a filthy dog. And so I think his mind was a little bit challenged when he saw the whole world represented. Every possible ethnic language, tribe, and group represented. I think it might take us back. I think we might be looking around going, wow, God's family is a lot more diverse than what I experienced in Pueblo, Colorado. It's a lot bigger than I gave him credit for. I think it will be a good day because the end of the story is we're going to be with the Lord forever. Not so with the people that don't have hope. With those people that don't have hope, this is their heaven. This is the best it's ever going to get. And this is a miserable heaven. Can I get an amen for that one? This is a miserable heaven. I can't imagine this being the best it will ever get. But not so for the believer who falls asleep in Christ and not so for the believer who is alive at the moment he returns. We will be with the Lord forever. Paul concludes this chapter with the very last verse, verse 18. Then he says to the people, to the brothers and sisters, therefore, in light of all of this, especially what's going to happen with death and dying in the future, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I would say this is exactly why we use the Bible so much at Calvary and every church. This is why we read the Bible, we talk about it, sometimes we memorize it, sometimes we sing it, we just make it part of our daily life because these are the words of encouragement. Paul can't go anywhere else but God's Word. We can't go anywhere else for encouragement and direction in life than God's Word. If we want to know the big picture, we need to know God's Word. If we want hope, we need to know God's Word. If we need to be rescued from the fall and justice, we need God's Word. It is that simple and unapologetic that we rest on God's Word and God's Word alone. Uh, Oftentimes, when I have an opportunity to talk to someone that really needs some counsel, you know, they they need wisdom, you know, I don't know what's going on in my life, what do I do? I will often tell the person, and maybe, you, maybe we've had this conversation ourselves, but when it's in a context of, hey, I really need direction here on what to do in life, I will tell the person, I'm going to give you two bits of advice at the very get-go. I'm going to tell you what some of my experiences have been, and maybe that can apply to you. And when I tell you, hey, this is what my experience has been, this might be helpful to you, understand that you are free to say no. I don't like that advice. You, you can take it or leave it. It's totally up to you to take that advice. But I say there's also a second type of advice that I'm going to give you, not from my life experiences, but from God's Word. And that advice, you are not free to say no to. 
You can't say, no, that's not going to fit my situation. Ah, no, 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 I want something different. No, 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 no. You can take my advice, take it or leave it all you want. It's not going to hurt my feelings. But you can't go to God and say, no, 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 no. I don't agree with that verse. I'm thinking of it so totally different. I want a verse that does this for me. No, no, no. These are the words that we live by. Jesus himself said, Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. And we don't have the option or luxury to say no to that. Now, we might have the brazen rebellion to say no to it, but I've read the rest of the book and it says he wins in the end. So you can say no to it all you want. It's, you're just heaping up more and more troubles. So my suggestion is when God says it, we believe it, we follow it, and we make it part of our own fabric and structure. And so that's why Paul says, hey, this is the book I lean upon. This is the words that I fall on. This is why I use it so much. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, something to take home uh, to work on the rest of this week. Out of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul's ending his first letter to the church at Corinth, and he says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. Or that word, Maranatha. Come, Lord. It is good and right to ask the Lord, come. Return this world to the glory of what it was in the Garden of Eden. Destroy sin and death and all the pain and suffering. Come. That can be part of your prayer and should be part of your prayer. Lord, return. I want to see you returning in triumph. I want to see these things unfold. I want to know what it really is. All I have is just pictures of it. And they're incomplete. Show us the fullness of all of your command when heaven and earth bow before you and you return as King of kings and Lord of lords. Come. Come quickly. Return this world to its glory. Only you can. Make that part of your prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these sometimes uncomfortable topics of death and what's going to happen and everyone has opinions and their favorite people to follow when it comes to the end times, help us, Father, to remain firmly encouraged by what you have actually written, not by what we think should happen in the end times. Lord, we're united as brothers and sisters, and so we unite ourselves in this prayer that we would ask you to return. Father, how much worse can it get? How much more pain can people endure? How much more evil can saturate our culture and society? Lord, return and set this world straight. Father, we look forward to the day you return. Yes, there's uncertainties of what it will be like, but we know for sure that we will be with you forever and ever and ever. And all of those who agreed prayed in Christ's name.